me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just, least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! It's all about one and done, son. You want to explain exactly what that means there, Hollywood? Yeah, so we went with bands that basically released one album and then they were done. So it could have been, you know, a super project that got put together and never materialized. We got a couple of examples of they're actually trying to put a band together, maybe make some money from it and take advantage of some names, but it didn't work out too well. We kind of tried to stay away from some of the new bands because they haven't had an opportunity to put their second album out. And I think most of the bands we have here are probably older than 2005, at least, maybe even older than that. But, you know, you could pick, you know, a band that just released their first album last year. Well, that's not very fair, right? We were trying to go with, hey, there was a band, they did an album, and then they went somewhere else, and that album kind of fizzled. And it sounds like it's easy to do. It honestly wasn't that easy because there's not that many bands that did the one album and done that was actually any good, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, there's going to be, I'm sure, a flood of records that get brought to our attention once this episode comes out. But the honest truth is, is nowadays, bands pretty much put out two, three, four records, whatever. Back then, you know, being one and done was mainly because, you know, the band at some point imploded or like you said, it was some sort of a special project or whatever, but it was much harder than I thought it would be when we first came up with this theme, for sure. Yeah, and we could have just done, well, hell, we could have done this whole episode on just George Lynch. 
right? Because he's got like 18 bands, but that's not really what we were going for. No, these are bands that definitely are pretty much one and done, meaning that you're not going to see this band put out another record very doubtful. Or if it is, it'll be in a completely different form with like one original dude that hung on to the name or something. Uh, There's one or two in here that could happen. And probably people would want to see happen. Yeah, for sure. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So tonight on Crank It Up New Music Spotlight, we are going to feature the band Mindfield. Minefield is Todd Kearns on vocals and bass, Brandon Fields on lead guitar, our old friend from the rock and roll residency, Jeremy Ashbrock on guitar, and Matt Starr on drums. Jeremy and Matt played with Gene Simmons and his solo band. I think Matt actually did some time in Ace Fraley too. And then Matt, of course, was filling in for Pat Torpy and Mr. Big and You know who Todd Kearns is, right? He plays with everybody, including Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. And Brandon Fields, I'm not that familiar with. Do you know who Brandon Fields is? Not a clue. Brandon Fields has spent the last several years touring as a solo artist. He is also the lead guitarist in a band called Whiskey A Go Go based out of Detroit. Brandon actually was the key cog in forming the band Minefield. The song is Coming Home. Check it out.
record is coming out on November 16th via Golden Robot Records. I enjoyed the first single that they put out as well. The first single was called Alone Together. This one is called Coming Home. And I like what I'm hearing so far. So I'm excited to hear this record again, November 16th via Golden Robot Records. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll get some of these guys on the show and talk to them about it. Yeah, my guess is Todd's kind of driving the songwriting. And if that's the case, uh, I like all of Todd's solo stuff. So it's probably a little bit harder than his solo stuff. You know, Jeremy and, and Matt are easy to get along with. They've done a lot of jack-of-all-trades type stuff. So they're going to go with the flow and, you know, participate when they have to. And we just don't know much about Brandon. But, like, there's not a big name here that goes, oh, Todd's just doing what that person's telling him to do. Like, I don't see that in here. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. So getting started on our topic here, this is going to be one of those more music, less talk things. Because, you know, when the band only lasts one album, there isn't a whole hell of a lot to say. So I'm going to share a couple of mine. The first one I went with was a band called Cobra. And the album is called First Strike. So it was released in 83 by Epic Records. Produced by Tom Allen, who did a bunch of other things. They had a single that got some MTV airplay. Goddard has actually covered a couple of these songs because Mandy Meyer, who is the lead guitarist in Cobra, was actually in Goddard for about eight years. So Mandy Meyer's playing lead guitar, Tommy Kaiser on bass, Jack Holder on guitar, and Jeff Clavin on drums. But the name that you want to remember here is the lead vocalist is Jimmy Jameson. And this is before he joins Survivor. So this music is a little more guitar driven and I've been a fool before and looking at you are a little more survivor. It's a pretty good album. This is one of the more mid-tempo type rockers. It's got a mix of everything you'll hear on the album. Here is Thorn in Your Flesh. Oh, 
Let me ask this question. Mandy Meyer, uh, I heard you give the backstory about that guy being in Goddard, and I know Goddard is a Swiss band. Was Mandy Meyer also in Crocus at one point in time? That's possible. That's possible, because I've heard that name before. Yeah, me too. That's why I'm asking. I know that Crocus Swiss band, Goddard's a Swiss band, so I'm kind of putting two and two together. I know that that's not a huge country, so... Yeah, and the timing works out, right? Because Cobra's done in like 84, 85. Meyer doesn't join Goddard until 96. Crocus is still working at that point. It does fit. Yeah, it could be possible. It is painfully obvious today that your lazy hosts didn't do their research for this episode. Armand, Mandy, Meyer has had three different stints in Crocus. He joined them in 1981 then rejoined from 2004 to 2008 and finally rejoined them in 2012 for good. By the way, just in case you care, Mandy also was in the band Asia for a while in the 80s. My next pick. Uh, you know what? I think the record company was really hoping for some magic here, but it's a band called Contraband, and it was a self-titled album. Basically, it's got Richard Black from Shark Island doing vocals, Michael Schenker from MSG doing guitars, Tracy Guns doing guitars from LA Guns, Cher Pedersen from Vixen doing bass guitar. You might be wondering, like, why the hell would you pick up Vixen? This is 1991, so Vixen does have somewhat of a name. And then Bobby Blotzer on drums, of course, of Rat. So I think what the record company was kind of counting on is put these five together and let's see what magic gets created. And kind of came about because Vixen and Rat did like this unplugged session for MTV. I've never seen that unplugged session. But uh, supposedly it exists out there. But the problem is if you're going to put these five in a room and try to create some magic, they got to actually write the songs. 
and there's 10 songs on here. Richard Black has a co-write on two of them. The rest, somebody else wrote. So what happens with the album overall is the guitars are bananas. Like Michael and Tracy kill it. The riffs, the soloing is outstanding. The rest of it kind of ends up being meh for the most part. All the way from Memphis, the Ian Hunter song was a single. It was all over MTV. It was a minor hit. My favorite song actually on it is called Intimate Outrage. Check this one out.
So I actually dig this song, but that first single, All the Way to Memphis, actually turned me off on this record, and I never really got this record. Uh, I thought it was kind of a mess, kind of really just like what you described. It was meh. And, you know, I can't remember who it was, whether it was somebody that was in contraband recently was doing an interview and telling horror stories about this whole project. I wish I could remember uh, what it was all about because they were just basically saying that this whole thing was just a sham of a project. Looking at the band members, there could only be one of two. It's either Richard Black because he's just a woman scorned kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> period, or it's Bobby Blotzer because somebody asked him. The other three wouldn't say anything bad. You know, and I don't think it was either one of them. It definitely wasn't Blotzer. Richard Blatt, there could be some truth to that, but I want to say it was like uh, Cher uh, or Tracy. Uh, if anybody listens to this and remembers what I'm talking about or has any idea, go out there and post it at the Loud Minority Facebook group because I, I do want to remember what it was. But they were just trashing this whole thing and just said it was basically a sham of a whole thing. They were supposed to play shows and they didn't play any shows or they were going to play shows and only half the members showed up or something. I don't know. Yeah, and you kind of look at, okay, armchair quarterback here, right? It's 1991. Shark Island ended up being nobody. Michael Schenker is who he is. Tracy is who he is. Vixen didn't end up being that big, right? Because the first album did okay, but the second album was meh. And then Blotzer is who he is, right? So really, now that we look at 91, to say that this is a super group with big names, uh, I don't know, two out of the five are big names. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, you know what I mean? But in 91, maybe it didn't feel like that. Well, you know what's funny too is, and Keep in mind, we're talking about 91. My recollection was when this came out that it was sort of one of the first super groups in terms of like the hard rock genre that I remember being promoted. Now they're a dime a dozen, right? Super groups every other day. But back then, not so much. And this was one of the first ones that I remember being promoted as a super group in the hard rock genre. Is that the same recollection for you? Well, Mr. Big was before this, so there was always a few, right? But I remember specifically thinking when they were put together, I'm like, okay, so MTV is playing less and less and less of the music. It's starting to move to Henbagner's Ball, so we're starting to become weird, like I'm part of this. But, you know, it is my music, right? We're starting to become this two hours, three hours at midnight, if you want to see us kind of thing. And the record companies are trying to basically put together five losing football teams and put them in one place and try to win Super Bowls with it? Like, do they think that Mr. Big was lightning in a bottle and we could do that with like all these other bands and, you know, and this rock music can go on. It'll just be super gross from now on. I don't know how many of those they tried, but I remember listening to Memphis and I'm like, this ain't LA guns. Like I was looking for Tracy to be the lead because I didn't know much about Michael at the time. Right. So I'm like, okay, Tracy's going to be the guy. This is going to sound like LA guns. And I heard it. I'm like, Oh my God, the shark Island guys on this. This is not going to sound like LA guns. I'll start off with a couple of personal ones to me. Both bands only had out one record. That was it. And then one of them sort of just disappeared and one of them sort of imploded. So I'm going to start out with the band mother's day out. 
Mother's Day Out was from Batesville, Arkansas. Look that up on a map at some point in time. It's roughly about two and a half hours from Memphis on back roads in the middle of absolutely nowhere with a population of somewhere around two to 5,000 people. And that is it. This was a band that put out a record called My Soul is Wet. And the record came out in 1993 on Chrysalis Records. It was produced by Eli Ball. Eli Ball also produced another Memphis band called Every Mother's Nightmare first album. And the band had little to no success in the United States, but they moved the charts a bit over in Europe. And they were kind of this hybrid rap, rock, metal band. And they were really, really young. So literally, the youngest guy in the band, I think, was 16. And the oldest guy in the band was 21 or 22. And they were definitely unique for the time. You didn't see a whole lot of bands out there like them. And the record company was pretty high on them. They spent a lot of money on this band going on in the early. I ended up spending three years of my life as this band's tour manager. And it was an interesting ride to say the least. It was like herding cats. But we spent several months in Europe and playing festivals and a lot of time over in the United States playing dates with bands like Sugartooth, who is another band that at least they got a couple records out, but you probably haven't heard of. The biggest thing probably Mother's Day Out did was they were asked to be in the feature film for Mortal Kombat. And they were in probably one of the earliest scenes, maybe 10 minutes into the movie, where these guys are going through this nightclub and there's a band on stage playing rock music. That's Mother's Day Out. I remember going to this movie studio and shooting this scene that took literally the entire night to shoot. But it was an interesting experience, and this is the song that they played in the movie. It's called What You See, We All Bleed Red.
That's not would up not your alley. Have, <laughs> yeah, I would not have seen them live. This they got this kind of like Faith No More slash Beastie Boys thing going on with yeah. the guitar. Like I, I just not my thing. Yeah, it's definitely not your thing, and it's not completely my thing. But I liked a little bit of the raw energy. I do like this tune. I think it's a, a cool. It's actually a couple songs together, but I do like it a little bit. And like I said. They were definitely unique at the time that they came out, and I think they could have capitalized 
if they were stronger from with the inside of the band, but they were just young and didn't know what they wanted to do. And they were all over the place and uh, the record company just couldn't reel them in. So it is what it is, but uh, I know there's still some diehard fans out there and I'll tell you what, we did play this um, Virgin Records mega store in Paris, France, and they played this live thing where they did three or four songs and I'm not shitting you. It literally was like a scene out of the Beatles for that particular gig. They were moving the chains a little bit in Europe and they had a very fast growing fan base in Paris. And that store was a little bit crazy. I remember them ushering us out the back door and down this alleyway into a van while a bunch of people like were chasing us. <laughs> so, so that was kind of an interesting experience, but everywhere else, nah, not happening. Yeah, you know, fun times. The second band I'm going to play is a band from right here in Atlanta, Georgia called Blondes. This band initially was called Dirty Blondes. They released a self-titled album in 1990 produced by Phil E. Hart and Steve Walsh from Kansas, and it was engineered by Brendan O'Brien. Brendan O'Brien went on to produce Rage Against the Machine, Stone Temple Pilots, Jackal, a whole bunch of bands from the 90s. Brendan O'Brien had great success, still has success today. Nathan, who's the lead singer of Blondes, spent a little bit of time in Lynch Mob most recently, and now he's singing in Tommy Skio's new band from Tesla. So check out this song from Blondes. This is called Sexy Ride.
Yeah, I don't love that whole album, but that song's got a little bit of sleaze to it, and that whole whoa, oh, 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 I was like, okay, all right, they got me. No, that was good. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good tune. Yeah, there's some good stuff on the record, but I got to tell you, to me, some of the songs on that record were watered down a lot because I saw those songs played live for a long time before they got their record deal, and they were much better songs raw. And so I think that this is a band that suffered a little bit from a producer and production in the studio because it's the age old story. They didn't capture the band live. You know what I mean? No, I get it. Cause it's weird. The record company at times wants a, you know, something different because it's the same old hat, but then they end up kind of making it all sound the same. So yeah, that makes it tough. Hi, this is Craig Goldie. You best know me from Dio and Dio Disciples and now Dream Child. And you're listening to the Grown Up Rock Podcast with Stephen and Sonny. We sometimes talk about all things start with Kiss. Uh, I'm going to prove that a lot of things start with Whitesnake, to be honest with you. But uh, the next one I want to talk about is Coverdale Page. Self-titled album came out in 91. This thing got the number five on the Billboard 200. It went platinum. Of course, John Kalodner, because both guys were signed to Geffen, so uh, Coverdale and Page kind of meet each other. Plant publicly, and I remember this, was not happy. I remember, because I didn't know a ton about Led Zeppelin, and I'm like, who's this Robert Plant guy that's talking crap about uh, David Coverdale's new guitarist, right? Because I was a I was a Whitesnake guy. You know, I don't know who Page and Plant are. I found that really out later. Plants out there, you know, taking shots at Coverdale. I don't know if they ever made up. I will tell you the songs have a Zeppelin flavor, but David's voice is a lot raspier and rawer. So you got Coverdale on vocals, you got Paige on guitars, you got Denny Carmasi on drums. That's no slouch. You got Jorge Casas playing bass and Ricky Phillips play bass on a couple of songs. A guy named Lester Mendez on keyboards. The songs are much longer than those, you know, four, four and a half minute songs that Whitesnake was getting popular for between like 84 and 89. But my favorite song in the album actually sounds like 80s Whitesnake. It's called Feeling Hot. Right. 
that swing time, you know, I got to tell you, man, it's an absolute travesty. Your disregard for the past, it's really frightening. I think it's. No, but no, no. You, you got to hear what I'm saying. So follow me here. I don't get into music until 84. I graduated high school in 86. I'm trying to jump in, start my own bands. All I'm listening to is hair metal. That is absolutely all I'm listening to. I start a job that basically defined my career in 1987. I become a manager in 89. So I wasn't like what we're doing now. I wasn't diving into a bunch of whole different music. Zeppelin comes on my radar right before Coverdale Page gets together. So it was, I just didn't know them today. Of course I respect who they are, but I didn't understand why this guy had something to say about Page. Yeah. Until I found out it was Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all valid, but I still like to take shots. <laughs> That's not changing. <laughs> what else? I remember when Bonham came out and everybody's like, well, that sounds like Zeppelin. I'm like, oh, yeah, what does Zeppelin sound like? Well, Bonham. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't help me, dude. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I went after that Bonham record disregard for timekeeping because I was thinking, I think this is the only record they put oh, out. Oh, no. Oh, no. They put out Mad Hatter. And when I saw the title of the second record, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that they did have Mad Hatter. But I don't remember much about that record, which tells me it was pretty lousy, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't that. Well, the first Bonham record is not that great. <laughs> uh, uh, the first Bonham Records got some good stuff on it, but yeah, I get your point. <laughs> yeah. All right. So my next one, technically the band is called Mars, I guess. It's M-A-R-S with a bunch of periods in the middle of them. And the, the album's called Project Driver. So 1986 through Shrapnel. So that means you got to have a good, you know, pseudo guitar god involved. And that's McAlpine, which is the M. The A is Tommy Aldridge. The R is Rob Rock. We'll talk about him in a second. And the S is Rudy Sarzo. So that gets you Mars. It gets you a couple of folks that are involved in Whitesnake later on. Craig Goldie was supposed to be the original guitarist, but he went to go join Dio. So he bounced out of this thing. And Rob Rock is, he's one of those guys that every 80s movie or 80s timing movie that you're going to see from now on that has anything to do with heavy metal is going to show this you know, long hair, not so great looking opera type singer. That's exactly who Rob Rock is. So, it, you know, it does it fit the speed metal sound of this band? Yeah, I guess it does. It's somewhere between a Momstein and kind of a bad Racer X, honestly. McAlpine doesn't really equal speed metal to me. So that's part of the issue. And then you kind of got this Rob Rock opera thing. There's hits and misses on this album for sure. I would say Righty and BC probably love this album. Like they own it. It's one of the God's gift to blah, blah, blah. There's some songs I like, but this is a pretty good song. Check this one out. It's called Stand Up and Fight.
I remember on the that two hour interview I did with Craig Goldie back last year, whenever that was, uh, which is a great interview. If you guys haven't checked out that Craig Goldie interview, go check it out. But Craig brings up Project Driver, and we talk a little bit about that and how he was initially in this thing. This is a standard Mike Varney Shrapnel Records record, and I don't like it for the most part. I think Mac Alpine is a incredible guitar player. Obviously, Tommy Aldridge, Rudy Sarza, those guys all stand on their own. But the songs for this record just aren't that great. I much prefer Steeler or Racer X to this record. And uh, this record did not get many spins on my, uh, I I guess, cassette deck at the time. (laughs) Yeah, and the difference with Varney is he was really out there showcasing guitar players instead of songwriters, right, sometimes. He got lucky and the person could do both. That's great, right? What Serafino's doing is putting together songwriters and that's being successful, right? So I think Varney had the right idea. He probably was just trying to jam people together that didn't quite maybe fit together. Yeah, I think where Serafino is running a huge risk, he's running the risk of using a lot of the same guys that have the same style. And so a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, is going to end up coming out and sounding the same. He has to be careful of that, I think. We'll take a quick break here and just uh, let you guys know, come over to the Facebook Loud Minority Facebook group for Grown Up Rock. It's called the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. Join the group. You answer a few rock and roll questions and come inside. We have conversations about the podcast, about some of the topics. Uh, we also share music and videos and concerts and things like that that we got going on it's just a good discussion centered around rock and roll and centered around this podcast so come on over and join up and uh, be part of the conversation So my next couple of picks, one of them we saw recently, which is Cold Sweat featuring Mark Ferrari of Kiel. They had one record out on MCA Records. And, you know, I thought it was a pretty good record at the time. They were awfully pretty at the time. MCA just didn't know what to do with the rock band. And they released this record in 1990. They did a couple of tours. They supported Dio on an arena tour at one point in time, but that was really just about it. Uh, They really didn't make a whole lot of headway except for that. But I really like a few of the songs on this record, and here's one that I dig quite a bit. This one's called Love Struck.
that song, along with a bunch of other ones on there, great vocal, great chorus, great guitar. Rory sounds great. Like this had hit written on it in 1987. <laughs> a little bit short, just a bit outside. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like so many others. But yeah, one and done. That was it. And then they re-released this Cold Sweat record fairly recently and that's when we had mart ferrari on the show and yeah i mean go check it out because you can get the reissue now uh if you dig that tune you should like the rest of the record the second record i got is a little bit outside of the typical hard rock metal type stuff we do this one's leaning a little bit towards the glam rock side of things and more like the older glam rock side of things. So Bowie, T-Rex, that type of thing. The band was fronted by former Jellyfish members, Roger Joseph Manning Jr. and Eric Dover. Eric Dover went on to join Slash's Snake Pit when he first got out of Guns N' Roses. I saw this band live. They probably didn't play a whole lot of live shows, but I got the chance to see them live. I was a huge Jellyfish fan, and I thought they were really, really good. I like this album quite a bit, but it is a little bit of a different record than the usual stuff that we play. But I really dig this tune, Spider.
I'm not a jellyfish fan, and I'm really like even T-Rex. Like I maybe know two songs, and I've tried some others, and I'm not in love with it. This one's okay. It's uh, really not my bag, though. Yeah, you didn't even like this tune, huh? Uh, it was okay. Meh. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> fair enough, man. It's fair enough. I dig this song, uh, and I like the record as a whole, but I didn't necessarily think it would be up your alley, but that's meh for you. That's all right. <laughs> okay so my last two that i want to share first one is a band called manic eden and their self-titled album that got released in 94 so mars when we were talking about that sarzo and uh, aldridge are in mars before they join white snake in 87 but you fast forward to 19 early 1990s Coverdale is like kind of sick of Whitesnake, wants to take a break. He ends up going and doing that Coverdale page thing. Well, Vandenberg, Sarzo, and Aldridge is looking for a new band. So they decide, all right, we're going to get together. Let's go grab that House of Lords guy because Sahara did okay. But uh, the next album, the, the company had, wasn't doing that great with them with Demons Down. So it's like, we'll go grab James Christian and uh, get going. And then for whatever reason, and nobody really knows the story, Christian gets fired. So then they go and get Ron Young and they never recorded any stuff with Christian. They put together this album and you know, it's Vandenberg, Sarzo, Aldridge and Ron Young. Like you can't really go wrong. It's got kind of a bad company vibe just because of the way Ron's singing some of it. And it feels like classic rock. So it doesn't really feel like 1994. It feels more like almost 1979 when it comes to the music. But it is a pretty cool vibe. Songs like Can You Feel It really shine. But my favorite on it is actually a song called Give Me a Shot.
So I'm going to be honest in saying that I didn't know anything about this band, had never heard of it until I went to start doing research for my Ron Young interview, which was last year sometime. Again, I hate to plug it, but another good interview, that Ron Young interview, so go check that out if you haven't checked it out. But that was the first time I heard of Manic Eden. He talks a little bit about that band in that interview. This is another super group. How I miss this band is just shows how much promotion went into this band because this record, I mean, this record, you can't even find this record, I think, except for on YouTube right now is about the only place you can find it. I couldn't find it on Spotify or anything like that. So number one, I haven't spent zero time with this record. So I have zero comments in terms of the album itself. This song is pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, I I like the song. I would love to hear the whole record and spend more time with it. But yeah, it just really didn't do much at all. And that's a shame for all the guys that were in that band because uh, that's some great talent in that band. Yeah, I ended up owning it because I was following what Whitesnake was doing, right? Because I I love that, that slide it in 87 and slip of the tongue so much that the minute they started kind of separating, I'm like, okay, what's all the other stuff these people have done? I didn't love all the stuff Vandenberger had done besides Whitesnake, but I did expose myself to all of it. And uh, that's how I ended up getting the CD. Yeah, but uh, Contraband isn't on Spotify at all. Manic Eden isn't on Spotify at all. And the next album I'm going to talk about isn't a Spotify. The other three I talked about are. Do you realize that we could do a... Uh white snake family tree and spend about four and a half months in covering <laughs> all the stuff from that. Yeah. You could, same thing with rat, same thing with docking, same thing with LA guns. Cause they've had like 55 members. <laughs> like there's, there's a few where, uh, you know, when you're going to be together 40 years, right. And still be doing stuff and be in the business 40 years. Not many people know that D martini was in white snake for a while. Yeah. Right. Touring. Right. Yeah. So rat and white snake cross paths at one point. So it's just, yeah, it's just odd. But, and for those of you that might be newer to the show or don't know what we're talking about, uh, we do an occasional series called family tree. I think the last family tree we did, we did a two part journey family tree where we explore the main band. So journey for instance and then we cover some of the offshoot bands that some of the members in journey were in we've done one for vinnie vincent are those only two that we've done we did kind of dead daisies at the beginning kind of yeah that's right we did do that i forgot i I don't think we called it a family tree episode but yeah we did so yeah i mean occasionally we'll throw those out there but if we ever do one for white snake uh, literally the year will have to be dedicated to it (laughs) (laughs) and then my last pick is a band called ice tiger and the album's called love in crime these guys you don't know any of the members graham green is the guitar player he's the one who kind of started all this and their story really starts in australia they're playing a bunch of gigs in 87 Songs are well-received. They get a record contract. They go release a single called Turn to Fantasy. That was number one on the local independent charts. Their second single is a power ballad called All I Need is a Friend. That went to number one. They release an album, Love and Crime, in 91. It goes to number one and charted nationally in some markets. The band did a bunch of touring for the CD, filmed two videos, 
didn't really get much MTV play. And then, you know, as you probably uh, realized when you were touring with bands, all that stuff, it takes forever to get there. And then it comes really fast and hard and it's a lot of hard work and you know, on top of each other and all that stuff. And it literally lasted a year and they were like done. Like they can't even deal with each other anymore. They've done a couple of reunion shows, 2007, 2008, just get together every once in a while to make the fans happy that they got. I will tell you this album's production is a bit rough. The guitar sometimes sounds like it's kind of recorded in a tunnel. My two faves are Paradise and one of the videos we mentioned earlier. Song's got a little bit of blues and a couple of different flavors. Here's the title track. It's called Love and Crime. First of all, could there be a worse name than Ice Tiger? Probably. (laughs) 
probably not, but Love and Crime, I, you know, I listen to this song. It, it sounds a little repetitive to me. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, it was just myth for me. Yeah, it's of the time. Yeah. You and I are both kind of listening to each other's going, eh, that's kind of meh. We're calling our own picks kind of meh. This is why they only did one album. These guys are not, they didn't have the Guns N' Roses appetite lightning in a bottle and take off because you listen to the album and you're like, oh, well, I can tell why that didn't take off. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, I think Coverdale Page could have done a second record, but yeah, for sure. We're making our own point, I guess. And that's, <laughs> that's probably going to continue with my, uh, my last two. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. My last two records get a whole lot of love on a lot of the different like Facebook groups, Melodic Mafia and all these different uh, rock groups that people belong to. And to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about either one of these bands till somebody bought them to my attention. And I went and checked it out and there's some good stuff there. Uh, you just gotta, you know, gotta check it out for yourself. Both are available on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify or Apple music streamer, you can find both of these and you might still be able to pick them up at Amazon or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, the first band I'm going to talk about is a band called War Babies. War Babies was an American rock band formed in Seattle, Washington in 1988. So it was fronted by former TKO vocalist Brad Sinsel. TKO, I used to have that record by TKO. They were a band that didn't do a whole lot, but I actually enjoyed the one record. I think it was called like, I don't know. I remember the guy had boxing gloves on or whatever. And I know our friend Brad Rustoven knows his band because I think he was a fan. So he knows what I'm talking about. I just can't remember off the top of my head. They only released one album in 1991. So here's a Seattle band releasing a record in 1991 that isn't altogether grunge. They're not completely away from grunge, but definitely not a grunge band in my opinion. The self-titled War Babies, they had a few songs, and guess who they co-wrote these songs with? They had none other than Mr. Paul Stanley sitting in on writing sessions and co-writing songs with them. So the song that I'm going to play is a song called Hang Me Up, which was co-written by Tommy McMullen, who's the band's guitar player, and Paul Stanley from KISS. Sensel later commented about his writing sessions with Stanley, calling him one of the biggest egomaniacs I have ever come across in my career. He was rude and disrespectful, and at some point I'm playing Kill the Pain, which is a TKO song, while they were warming up. So he says, I'm going to start playing some stuff, and you just tell me if you hear anything. What came out of it was Just Kill the Pain, which is the TKO song, backwards. At some point, he goes, how about in this part we do blah, 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 and it was off of Love Gun. By now, <laughs> by now, I had had enough of his remarks, and I just looked at him and said, look, it's not like I'm Tommy talking about his guitar player, and he says, what do you mean? And I said, it's not like I own a Kiss doll or something. <laughs> so obviously, Brad Sensel wasn't a Kiss fan, and the guitar player in his band was. 
So he was not a big Paul Stanley fan. But I got to ask you, a lot of songs back in the day, I think, were created just by turning certain riffs around. I mean, I've heard other songwriters talk about that. So I think that's pretty common practice, so to speak. You ever heard that? Yeah, I've heard uh, similar things. And, you know, I think the only reason to have Paul come to a writing session with you is either you're trying to connect yourself to who he's connected with to help you get ahead. You got to have a Kiss fan in the group. There's no way Paul's even coming unless there's a Kiss fan in the group. Yeah. And then you're trying to possibly use his name to sell your record later, right? Sure. The problem with Paul versus Gene is a set of balls. And that's just what it is. Gene will say before he even gets into a situation, you got to get rid of that guy. Otherwise, this album's not going to sound good. Yeah. Right? Just like he did with Jufria, right? Right. Paul won't do that. Yeah! And when I'm listening to this stuff, I'm like, Brad's vocal doesn't really fit with what Paul writes. And I can imagine there was tension, but Paul doesn't have the balls to say, you got to get rid of that guy if you want a good album. He's just not going to do that. And I don't know if it would have been true anyway. I'm just saying he doesn't do that. Yeah. So check out the song Hang Me Up by the War Babies. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that song. It's you know Brad's vocal. It's uh, it's not hair metal. That vocal's yeah. not you know it, it's not uh, the most melodic vocal on the planet. It's not bad. I'm just surprised Paul would even kind of hitch his wagon to these guys. It's like ah, stuff I write. That guy's not really going to be able to do that. Yeah, and some of the record is really good, but it's not a grunge record. It's not a hair metal record. There's different influences from different places, but check it out if you get a chance. If you dug that song, you'll probably like the rest of the record, I would think. It's in line with the rest of the record. So my final band is a band called Heavy Bones. They were a heavy metal band from Hollywood, California that formed in 1990. The band consisted of Joel Ellis on vocals, Here's a name you know, Gary Hoey on guitars, Rex Tennyson on bass, and here's definitely a name you know, the late, great Frankie Benali on drums. Even though Tennyson is listed as the bassist, Scott Thunes played all the bass tracks on the album, and Tennyson appeared in their one and only video for a song called 4AM TM. Their one and only album was released on Reprise Records in 1992, and Richie Zito produced the self-titled effort, and it did not sell very well, and the band ceased to exist shortly thereafter. Richie Zito, he's another one I did an interview with not too long ago, but check out the song, The Hand That Feeds Heavy Bones.
So the timing of when this came out, because from about 89 to about 93, I spent all my time in the rock clubs, right? We had the Stone, the One Step Beyond, and the Omnis where I spent most of my time, but there was other clubs around too. So I go back to the archives. I'm like, I bet I've seen these guys live. I'm telling you, these guys didn't last long enough to make it to San Francisco <laughs> because I never saw them live. So that means they didn't play the three biggest rock clubs in the Bay Area, which means they didn't last too long. You also left out Bottom of the Hill. That's another club in oh, San yeah. Francisco. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a dive. That's not a club. I've played that place before. <laughs> That's a di- that doesn't surprise me because that's a dive. <laughs> yeah, I think Mother's Day Out played that place. All right, so uh, that's it. I mean, again, if you dig Hand That Feeds, uh, you'll probably like the rest of the record. It's in line with that whole vibe. It's just a record that didn't get talked about, and they had some pretty talented people in the band. So there you go. You wanted the best, and you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kid! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So the historic moment for today is a band called Chelsea, and they got a self-titled album that released in uh, 71. So Chelsea is a band from New York City, and Peter Chris's name's attached to it before he joins Kiss, right? So it's Peter Shepley on lead vocals, Mike Brand on guitar, Chris Adrias on guitar, Michael Benvenga on bass, and then Peter Chris on drums. So they released the one album, and basically they're going to go do a second album, and they can't get along. So in August 71, two of the guys, Michael and Peter Chris, became this band called Lips, and they bring in a guy named Stan Penridge. And that's where the songwriting team starts with Chris and Penridge. By the time 73 rolls around, Lips is just a duo with Chris and Penridge. And the rest is history because Chris goes to go join Kiss. This album's about 10 songs. Peter co-wrote just one of the songs, but supposedly he played drums on the whole record. Now, I don't even know what to believe anymore. I'm assuming he did. I don't really know. Nobody probably knows. The album's got that kind of sound. It's somewhere between Cream and The Animals. And some of that stuff's a hard listen for me because it kind of dips into acid rock. It's not always melodic. So some of it's kind of a hard listen. But uh, this song's pretty good. Check this one out. It's called Long River.
Yeah, Long River is just good hippie rock, as I like to call it. So which one of these guys in Chelsea co-wrote Beth with Peter? Didn't one of these guys in Chelsea? Penridge. Oh, it was Penridge. Okay. So yeah, this is just a old 70s hippie rock, free love Woodstock type feel to uh, Long River. So light up a joint and, uh, you know, dig it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of one and dones. Uh, you know, there's millions probably. Uh, we could have done 55 episodes on this. The problem is there's a reason why some of those folks were one and done. And, you know, this is stuff that I own. So I wanted to kind of stick to stuff that I own um, and ran into at some point. You know, some went to bigger and better things. Some didn't, some had major success like a Peter Chris and then, you know, burns out the other end, but there's always a starting point for folks. I think there's times where in music history, record companies have gotten involved, trying to create something that's worked at points. It doesn't work at some points. You know, Mr. Big is probably a bad example because the record company wasn't putting them together, right? They did that on their own. So that's a little bit different probably than. I think contraband was kind of jammed together probably because I can't imagine that Blotzer and, you know, Blacker sitting having a beer going, I think we should put a super group together. Like, I just can't imagine that happening. To be honest, I don't ever really remember. I'm not saying they never use the term for Mr. Big, but I never really remember Mr. Big being pushed as a super group. Yeah, it was on this side of the world just because Paul Gilbert was a Bay Area name and Eric Martin was from the Bay Area. Yeah. So it was kind of to us, it was like these super guys getting put together with Billy Sheehan. Yeah. We didn't know who Torpy was really, but later on when you start digging into who Torpy was, you're like, oh, he was in a lot of stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, so on this side of the world, it felt like that. Yeah, and for the rest of the world, it was like, yeah, Billy Sheehan's in that band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you're spot on, by the way, with that. Blotzer's not having a beer with anybody and <laughs> joining in a band. <laughs> that, that was a mess. But anyway, I can't wait to hear what albums other people like that were one and done. Because, like I said, I'm sure we missed some. But I would like to hear from people. So definitely go on the Facebook group or Twitter or whatever and tell us what 10 albums or what uh, few albums. I don't care whether it's one or 10, but let us know which ones you're into so that I can check them out if I've never heard of them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the feedback. And like we talked about before, if you're not part of the loud minority, you want to join. Because a lot of the times what we'll do is before we do an episode, We'll kind of tap into and say, hey, does uh, anybody have an opinion on X? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to fill out a survey? I'm going to send you a survey. So it kind of gets you pseudo-involved in an episode that might be upcoming. So if you haven't done it yet, definitely join the loud minority. Yeah, for sure. And like we said, in December, we'll be doing Van Halen tribute. And we'll have different themed episodes each week, including game shows and charts and things like that. So it'll be fun to do. Yeah. Looking forward to the rest of the year. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you later. See ya. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 